This is Geek Gab with your house. John, Brian, and me, Daddy Warpig, we are back. Geek Gab for Sunday, February 12th, 2017. Terrible teams and terrific tabletop games. That is the, at least the primary uh, topic of discussion today. And I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll venture far, far afield. But before we do, before we do, I'd like to pause and uh, and give a second to allow my fellow hosts to uh, say hi to you, our awesome and amazing and unusually intelligent and attractive audience. Hello, everybody. I... I can't help but notice that that our audience is five percent more attractive just for logging on. It's true. It's absolutely true. It's amazing, but true. You can believe us. Studies have shown. Oh, I've I've got some pretty good news for Brian. Uh, recently, I finally sat down and uh, at my uh, machine and watched the Korean action flick, The Man from Nowhere. Oh yeah, that oh, uh, that Larry Korea recommended when he came on the show. Yeah, and uh, what did you think? I I thought it was pretty good. I think um, if I say that, I think Larry oversold it. I don't I don't think that's doing it justice because that makes it sound like it wasn't that good. It was great. It was pretty. I liked it. Um, the the big showpiece that you guys were talking about. Uh, it had this fantastic knife fight, uh, especially at the end. But it wasn't. You guys sold it like this was a, an amazing, uh, you know, vicious choreographed fight, which, which it was, but <clears throat> not in the epic sense that you get out of martial arts films, in the way that there's back and forth and they tell a small story and everything. It was more like mm -hmm. a, a believable instance of what a brutal knife fight between two professional killers would be. It mm -hmm. was. It was um, short, mean, and visceral. Uh, and so if you liked violence in your movies, oh my goodness. Much like Dog Wick. I, I thought the, uh, the action choreography <laughs> in Dog Wick was just amazing. Uh, Dog Wick blew my mind. I think it should be up for an award this year. Does YouTube give out awards? Uh, it should get an Academy Award. Well, the audience right now, half of you who've seen it are going, oh, yeah, that, that, that was kind of cool. And the other half are going, what is he talking about? I'll include a link to Dogwick in the uh, description underneath the video. Uh, yes. It's, it's hilarious. You should watch it. I just did right before the show started. Uh, yeah, as soon as they, they actually went to the action scenes in Dogwick, uh, my mind was blown. I was in tears. So, Brian, how was your week? Well, been busy as always. Um, been hard to work on my Castile House project. I just got some notes back from my editor today. So looking at uh, making some revisions. And on a project like this, where I didn't originate it, it's a very interesting process because there, there's a back and forth. There's a give and take. So we're going to compromise and growing as an artist for it. and. 
I think it's going to result in the best possible product for you folks. We'll see. I, uh, I'm looking forward to it. I hope it turns out well. I've been getting some interesting feedback on my uh, Castalia House pro uh, project as well. Um, mm -hmm. I, I now am blogging over at the Castalia House blog. Uh, and I've done precisely two posts so far. Um, but uh, both posts included in them a critique of Campbellian sci-fi. And ca several adherents of that style of science fiction um, have disliked the tenor and content of my comments. So... Uh, in fact, there was an entire post made by a, you know, published science fiction author this week that was sort of a response to um, a response to my approach in critiquing Campbellian sci-fi. Um, and that was kind of interesting because I had to, I mean, I'm not here to tick people off personally, but at the same time, Campbellian sci-fi has had 79 years, 79 years of free reign to criticize the pulps, free reign to denigrate the pulps, free reign to eventually push the pulps out of science fiction entirely and even erase them from, from common consciousness to where a whole new generation of fans were born that had never read the pulps. They didn't know anything about them. They you know, didn't even know they existed, except in the more vague general sense of, uh, of these were stories that happened at one time and they all sucked. So don't ever read them because they all sucked. So you don't have to read them because they sucked. Um, so 79 years of constant disparagement to where the term quote-unquote pulpish is an insult in uh, the science fiction community, even among authors who like the pulps, the term pulpish is an insult. Um, and, and yet my two blog posts pushing back against this, you know, four generations of propaganda uh, have aroused people's ire um so that was an interesting that was an interesting moment um i just yeah i responded politely but forcefully and uh i've got another post going up tomorrow that i hope to be uh also forceful and yet polite polite on the internet to eddie warpig do you know what you're up against <laughs> And, and it's also a fight in science fiction fandom for whom the term politeness uh, is completely, it, it's a more alien language than either Elvish or Klingon. People are more fluent uh, in Elvish and Klingon than they are in politeness when it comes to discussions <laughs> or arguments in the science fiction community. So, yeah. Yeah, and I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I even uh, had, had to deal with a little drama this past week resulting from the, the rise and prominence of the pulp revolution and superversive movements. So there, there've been some folks who are well-meaning, I wish nothing but the best for these folks, but who've been saying, well, we, we need to make sure that the pulp revolution and superversives don't turn into the gatekeepers a la trad pub that they despise. So to that, I would just say, don't worry. <laughs> that, yeah, that's not going to happen. I mean, it, the physical mechanisms for there ever to be gatekeepers again 
are, are gone. Like we will never be able to decide who gets published and who doesn't, who gets a magic carpet ride to the top of the bestseller lists and who gets left out of the industry because no one can be left out of the industry anymore. Um, yeah, I, I thought that was about as plausible as being worried about the Mighty Ducks winning the NHL uh, Trophy Cup too many times. It's like, wait a minute, guys. Okay, it's the first movie. They're barely, you know, on the ice. I don't think we have to worry right now about them winning the NHL Cup too many times. I mean, and, and is that a is that a really an insult anyway? I'm not saying I want to go on a rampage against all other forms of science fiction and fantasy but frankly the previous ages of science fiction and fantasy have dropped the ball they've driven away the audience um and if yeah, we have metrics to prove it yeah if Polk can come along and reinvigorate the genre and draw an audience in who has not been reading science fiction and fantasy for decades then whether or not they're gatekeepers, it doesn't matter. I, someone on Twitter yesterday uh, said that he, we're all going to be shocked uh, when he writes a literary science fiction novel that has nothing to do with the pulps. And I said, look, you can't possibly write a science fiction novel that has absolutely nothing to do with the pulps because in order to do that, you'll have to throw out everything that's good about your novel. You'll have to throw out all the action. You'll have to throw out all the adventure. You'll have to throw out all the heroics. You'll have to throw out all the hard science. You'll have to throw out all of the imaginative stuff. You'll have to become John Scalzi, okay? Ugh. So you, you cannot write a book that has um, absolutely nothing to do with the pulps because whereas the pulps weren't the original science fiction authors, the that credit goes to pioneers like Jules Verne and whatnot. Um, they were what popularized fantasy and science fiction and every other later age, the Campbellian age, the new wave, um, the iron age of the you know explosion of genres after Star Wars, and now the clay age, every other age has been a subset of what the pulps had. They've basically been the pulps, but with cool stuff taken away. And then even more cool stuff taken away. And then even more cool stuff taken away. And so it's impossible to banish the pulps from science fiction and fantasy. It can't be done. All you can do is throw away good stuff that makes your stories, that hampers your writing as an artist. And that's exactly what happened in the later ages. So um, my thesis, which I don't have to prove to anybody else because I'll just say it and then sit back and watch it happen, is that once people are exposed to the pulps, once they go pulp, it will forever affect, it will forever infect all of their writing after that for, I would assume, generally speaking, uh, in a very, very positive way. Right, so, and like you said, it's not that the other ages are total garbage. Even amid good stuff came out of the Camelon Age. You called it the Silver Age. Yeah. Silver is not so bad, yeah. But the thing is, we we just want, and I think the guys like John Mollison and Nathan Hasley P. Alexander would agree with me that we want writers to write the kinds of stories they want to write, and we want readers to read the kind of books they want to read. Yep. And so we, yeah, objectively have gone back and looked at the pulps, and not only they're not are they not racist garbage, they're the golden age of science fiction. Yeah, they're they're as a group better, and if you 
if you free your imagination, if you free uh, yourself to embrace heroics and heroism, to embrace action and adventure, to embrace inventiveness and imaginativity, um, and I think I just invented imaginativity as a word today. Uh, if you free well, your mind to embrace all of those things, it cannot help but make your writing better. It cannot help but make your books better. It cannot help but to make them more entertaining, more vivid, more thrilling, more moving. It cannot help just that general milieu cannot help but draw audiences in. And so the more people we have who are embracing the freedom afforded them by pulp, that embracing the freedom that is evinced by pulp and go out and create new stuff, go out and create great stuff. The more people who uh, do that, the more vibrant, the more exciting, the more thrilling, the more audience-pleasing science fiction and fantasy becomes. And we can finally start repudiating and pushing out people's perceptions of science fiction as being this boring, miserable, preachy, social justice field and even start pushing back against oh well science fiction is just for teenage boys oh well science fiction is just for geeks because it used to be that science fiction was popular with everybody and it's not anymore and that is a direct result of the silver age and later ages taking out critically important stuff from science fiction and fantasy so here's a question for you that was put to me which is okay if literary sci-fi or print sci-fi is in this cultural ghetto where it only appeals to the hardcore SWs. how is it that film sci-fi that things like Star Wars, Star Trek, even even the Marvel movies are able to escape from that ghetto? But what is Hollywood doing right that the big five publishers are doing wrong? Hollywood makes with a couple of exceptions and there are exceptions like The Martian and Passengers. Um, so I, I will grant that there are exceptions. We'll set those exceptions aside for just a second. 2001, mm -hmm. also an exception. Mm -hmm. Hollywood makes action movies with science fictional elements. They didn't throw away action and adventure. They didn't throw away, uh, at least in many cases, the appearance of heroics. They even give lip service to heroics. Even if they're doing a movie badly, it still has action and adventure and all of the things that draw audiences in. Um, look at iRobot. I mean... And, and don't forget that the, one of the big problems with Hollywood these days is that they're, they're broadening their market around the world. And that's when we get those sort of um, movies that are bland except that they're nonstop action, you know, start to finish, because they can sell that over in China. And see, I, I am notorious for being pro-action. I, I love action. I love heroics, which is action with a moral context. Um, but Hollywood's, if you over-rely on action, if there's nothing but action, if there's no moral co core or no uh, nothing worthwhile behind it, it's going to be a pretty, pretty... It'll be entertaining, but it won't last. It won't be a movie people talk about for a long time. And we can take as an example, as an anti-example, I would assert Dread, right? 2012, I want to say 12, but that's wrong. Is 15, 14? Anyway, somewhere in that vicinity. Um, Dread came out, which was, had a lot of action to it. 
fairly brutal action, but it also had a moral core. Dread is, although intended to be originally a satire and intended to be originally a uh, condemnation of the police state, in that movie, in Dread, he is absolutely an uncompromising hero who is there in this building to do something good and along the same, at the same time, analyze the performance of this rookie and you have that whole, you know, her living up to what she's supposed to do and even after she knows she's failed, she goes in and fights again. I mean, that's all great stuff that you can add into an action movie to make it more meaningful than just explosions. Um, and, and so to take it back to science fiction, that's why Hollywood is doing better is because it's willing to have the audience-pleasing elements of action and heroics that, by and large, the genre has lost uh, and were thrown away deliberately, at least, starting in the Silver Age in the Campbellian science fiction. Well said. Think you're on to something. All right. By the way, um, Dread... Dread was indeed 2012. Just wanted to confirm you there. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, there you go then. Um, all right. Well, let's, uh, now that we've eaten up half of the show, I told you we were going to talk about other things, what we came here to talk about. <laughs> and I was right. <laughs> I want to do a quick pocket review of the Terrible Teens half of the title. Um, Terrible Teens is referring to the TV show Riverdale. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that neither of you have watched Riverdale. Correct. All right. Um, lo and behold, once upon a time, back in the deep, dark mists of time, which only a few aged people such as myself remember, there was a series of comic books, all of which shared the same universe. The town of Riverdale. It was called Archie Comics. And you had Archie and Jughead and Reggie and Betty and Veronica and Principal Weatherby and Mrs. Grundy. And it was a it was about being teens and dating, and it was about innocence and fun, and it was about a romantic triangle between Archie and Betty and Veronica, and it was about a whole lot of really wholesome stuff. Now Setting aside for the knots, um, whether or not a comic series like that can last or thrive in today's culture, that's, that's kind of orthogonal to the discussion in this show. They have, what I want to focus on is a recent CW TV show called Riverdale. And this is a gritty reimagining of the Archie Comics series. No. Gritty reimagining of the Archie comics series in which the very first thing that happens in the very first episode is a murder. <laughs> are, we not, are we not supposed to laugh at murder here on the show? A teenage boy who is a twin, it is suggested who is maybe amorous with his sister who survived. I'm not kidding, folks. I, I'm not kidding. It's it's kind of hinted at in the subtext that there is something romantic between this guy and his sister. Um, he turns up dead. She turns up traumatized. But wait, there's more. You see, innocent Archie Andrews, the uh, America's wholesome ginger, 
was at the time this murder was taking place in a car on the banks of a river engaged in sexual intercourse with a teacher, Miss Grundy, who instead of being like, I don't know, 80, is a super hot 20 or 30 something teacher at the school. They're copulating in the car when this kid is, is shot in the forehead and murdered. Um, Archie, by the way, is a high school sophomore and it's at the beginning of the school year. So he is intended to be approximately 15 years of age. Seduced by this 30-something, 20-something-year-old super hot teacher. Um, gritty reboot. Moose, who you may remember is a big football player on the show, uh, is shown to be an in-the-closet homosexual. Betty and Veronica, when they are auditioning for the cheer squad, and it's threatened that they may not make it, begin making out in front of the cheer squad committee. Betty and Veronica making out. Um, and Jughead, who it used to be a happy-go-lucky guy whose primary vice was eating massive sandwiches, um, is now a bitter, grim writer who's uh, the person who does all the voiceovers to establish the noirish tone of the TV series. And um, Betty's brother is, of course, flagrantly out and gay. And Betty, who is, again, supposed to be a 15-year-old girl, pretty blonde Betty, is displayed in a lengthy scene in her underwear, in her bra and panties. Uh, for whatever reason, the TV show felt comfortable with inviting the viewer to uh, appreciate the feminine charms of, a, fifth, of a, a, a character who is supposed to be 15 years old. The actress is, of course, much, much older. So, now I haven't expressed any explicit opinion about Riverdale, but I would like to invite the audience, I would like to invite the audience to analyze the subtext of my comments and discern my opinion about the show. Um, I will say this. The mystery driving the show right now is the murder of this twin, the murder of this male student. And they do effectively establish the mystery. And at the end of both episodes, I watched the first two episodes, at the end of both episodes, they do include sudden shocking twists that kind of make you want to watch the next episode just to find out what happened. That at least is skillfully done. The actors do a great job. The show is shot very, very well. They've done a good job at establishing the ambience that they want to establish. It's, um, as far as the context of the show, as a show by itself, if it had nothing to do with the Archie comics, it would be another, just another CW retread there's nothing new or original or interesting about the show in and of itself the only thing that makes the show worth paying attention to is that they are taking the wholesome clean all-american archie comics and completely twisting it so i don't know i find it to be 
obnoxious and offensive to throw out everything that's good and worthwhile about the Archie comics and to put out put slap the names of Archie and the characters on direct like this that have absolutely nothing to do with Archie. Um, it would be like turning Superman into Deadpool. I mean, Deadpool was a very popular movie, a very successful movie. But at the same time, a Superman movie in which he acted exactly like Deadpool would be atrocious and offensive. So that's my opinion about the show. We are we are living in a nightmare, gentlemen. <laughs> and it is Riverdale. Do you, have any, do you have any questions, Brian, before we uh, jump on to the final topic? No, but I might have an answer for you, because it turns out the head writer on Riverdale, same dude who wrote Carrie 2013. I, I, haven't, on that one. I haven't seen Carrie 2013, but I heard it was awful. Now there's anyone else. So there you go. <laughs> well, alrighty then. Um, so here's the last topic I wanted to talk about today. Um... Terrific tabletop games. And I want to, I wish we had had more time. Uh, but we had so much time on the, you know, surprise rant about pulps and Cambellian science fiction that occupied the first half of the show. We're, we're running out of it. I'm going to try to get this in as quickly as possible. My brother in law um, was running a DD 5 campaign. And he was running it basically for his family plus a couple of other people. Um, and I qualify as his family, and my brother qualifies as his family because we're both brother-in-laws, and his two, and his three brothers, uh, and a couple of friends, and and his sister. And abruptly, most of the people, or not so abruptly, over the course of several weeks, most of the people who were committed to come stopped attending the the game. So, um, the question I have. Uh, that I wanted to get some discussion about that we don't really have time for is for you people. Now, my brother-in-law made a choice. It was a bold choice, and I think it was the right choice. I'm hoping it turns out well. His choice was to stop playing D&D and start a new campaign in the hopes that it would reinvigorate the group, that people would be more interested in playing this other game. It's the new Star Wars game. Um, he's setting it in the Knights of the Old Republic or the Old Republic time era so it's not during the civil war it's not during the pre the prequel movies it's not during uh the force awakens it's it's four thousand years before all that uh in the kotor video games or the old republic video game um he's decided to do that in the hopes that that would reinvigorate his campaign we've done character creation so far and it's looking good i mean people seem like they're excited about coming and attending so my question is uh to brian and and john what would you have done in that same situation Honestly, I think he's doing the exact right thing. I found that a change in gaming systems, just swapping out for a different game, can help add spice to a flagging group. It, it may be they aren't interested in the type of game, and changing systems can... It, the system sort of tells you how you interact with the other people and, and, the, uh, and the game itself, right? It's not just how do I kill monsters? But, you know, playing a white wolf game is, is significantly different from playing a, you know, a dungeon crawling game, you know, the mechanics sort of steer you towards different things. So 
changing the rule sets uh, definitely a great way to go. You only have to weigh it against the costs of learning the system. The and casual, casual players are going to have a problem with that. The other thing I liked about um, the new campaign is that pretty much everyone chose to create uh, what they call it scoundrel. They have a specific source book for it, scoundrel characters. So we're not in the Sith Empire. We're not part of the Republic. Um, and they're all, basically, it's it's a lot like Firefly. Um, mercenaries for hire or criminals for hire. Let me say that again. He's doing a fringe campaign. Yeah, but that wasn't his choice. That was like what the players chose by creating all the characters that they did. And so uh, he talked to each player on their own. And they said, okay, well, I want to create this kind of character. All the characters are different, but they all turned out to be, um, you know, people who walk on the shady side of the law who will are perfectly willing to do jobs that either the Sith or the Republic consider illegal. So I think that's interesting. I think that uh, makes the campaign... Um, I think that makes the campaign a lot more intriguing than just playing in the in the galactic civil war era in which you can do all this stuff, but really the battle, the war is going to be won by Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia and Han Solo, so there's nothing nothing you do really going to matter one way or the other. Playing in the Old Republic 4,000 years ago, it, it's completely open. Whatever happens, you know, we're really in charge of our own fates. And I, uh, you know, people went and created their characters and one person wanted to play a pilot, another person decided to play a mechanic, um, and there were various other people picked different roles completely independent of each other. None of us sat down and said, okay, well, we need a ship and we need this, these roles in the ship, so you have to make this character. It just turned out that way. So uh, I'm, I have high hopes for the campaign, at least. Um, Sounds good. I, I can tell you that I haven't even begun to play 5th edition yet. I... My game's been on hiatus since Christmas. Oh, uh, that's too bad. Uh, yeah, well, part of it was the holiday, and part of it is is me supporting my wife and taking care of the new puppy. Um, so it's mostly a time thing. But uh, I've been converting the game over and talking to some of the players and everything. And and while I'm going to appreciate the simpler dice system, some of the game changes are are really disappointing, uh, which sort of runs counter to the experience that we had when we actually tried it. Well, um, how so? Uh, in in, partic in particular, they they've maintained the the theme of characters are important and they're not uh, they're hard to kill. So uh, in in going from three point five or Pathfinder, if you will, to um, fifth edition, I'm simplifying the rule set a great deal, but I'm not losing any of the character survivability, which it, it makes me sound like an awful player killing DM, but you know, as we've discussed before, it's important to have steaks. Delicious, right. delicious medium steaks. <laughs> well, uh, hopefully you'll, hopefully your game will get back running again, and uh, we can talk about it on the show some other time. Um, do we have an announcement yet about next week? I mean, you've kind of already announced it. We haven't done it on the show though. Um, do you want to do that, Brian? Yeah, I think we should. Go I think for we it. Should so. You asked for it, dear listeners, and just because we love each and every one of you on a deeply personal level, we have invited Jeffro Johnson back on the show, but that's not all. Because of an idea that John C. Wright actually had in his blog, like, hey, wouldn't it be cool 
to hear Jeffro discuss Penix N, discuss the pulps with Razor Fist. And I thought, yes, that would be an excellent idea. So we have extended invitations to both those gentlemen. Jeffro has accepted to be on the show next week. It is tentatively scheduled for Saturday, February 18th at 12 Pacific, 3 Eastern. Razor Fist has agreed to the date so far. We're just trying to get him uh, to confirm on the time. And then also John C. Wright contacted me and said, hey, mind if I sit in on this? I consider Razor to be my foul-mouthed, disobedient son who shares all my tastes in comics. <laughs> so I asked the guys, and they said yes. So next week, God willing, we will bring you our first ever multi-guest extravaganza with Razor Fist, Jeffro, and John C. Wright. <laughs> You'd better make the time to be there. Um, we're currently planning the show to be at least an hour, maybe as long as an hour and a half, depending on how the discussion goes. Um, but John C. Wright and Jeffro have both confirmed the time and the date, so unless something happens between now and then, uh, at the very least, they'll come on the show, and we are... Uh, Again, Razor Fist has said yes. He'd like to come on. Yes, I'll be able. He's available on the 18th. So as long, so as soon as he gets back to us, um, with the time, says the time's okay. Then we'll be running at 3 p.m. Eastern next week with uh, all three of them discussing Appendix N and Elric of Milnibone and uh, whatever else enters their minds to discuss. So I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be great. Um, oh, I, I look forward to a lot of me shutting up and listening in rapt attention. <laughs> It's, it's going to be explosive. You're going to wish that those three were the Geek Gab instead of us. So We um, might wreck civilization. <laughs> um, is there anything else you guys want to say before we sign off? Because we, we're over time. Way over time. We well, as always, as always, you'll find links to my excellent Soul Cycle below. Science Fiction is back. You are back. No big minute screwdrivers. Just um, psychic fire golems, lycanthropes, and mutant jellyfish. Check it out. Cool. Uh, I love it. I love the books, by the way. And you guys know I don't read. Um, I'd like to thank everybody for listening. Um, those of you tabletop lovers, uh, as soon as we get all this this pulp and reading stuff uh, out of the way, we'll definitely talk more about D and D uh, and and tabletop games. So um, stay tuned. Let's see. There's some usual stuff that I want to go through real quick, folks. First off, I'm writing at the Castelia House blog, and so I've got a new post going up tomorrow morning. Um, and uh, you'll, if you've read the other two posts, you'll want to check this one out too. It, uh, well, it'll uh, irritate the same people who were irritated by the last two posts. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Uh, so. Uh, this is Geek Gap, folks. We're here usually about once a week. Um, we do a live show on YouTube at youtube.com slash geekgab. If you happen to catch us during the half-hour show, you can sit in. In the live chat, we take questions and comments from the chat, and uh, it's, a, it's a great discussion there. On uh, the other hand, if you want to catch it later as a podcast, you can, of course, go to iTunes. We are available on the iTunes store. Just do a search for Geek Gab. If if iTunes isn't your thing and you want to uh, and you're on an Android device and you want to subscribe to us there, you're set. We've got you hooked up. Just do a search for Geek Gab and we are available on the Google Play Store for your Android device. And if 
You reject the dominance of corporate control of media. And you wish to access the show through an independent channel. You can, in point of fact, go to SoundCloud. And GeekGab is available on SoundCloud. Once again, just do a search for GeekGab. And uh, we're available there as well. We do appreciate everybody who turns into the uh, to the live chat. We appreciate all of you who listen later uh, through the various means I have just discussed and iterated and revealed to you. We, uh, we're going to be taking off for today, but don't worry. Don't you fret. We will be back.